This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. (laughs) Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in the city of Melbourne. Today's big question, surely a loving God would never allow this much pain. In 1882, the great German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche made the controversial claim, God is dead. So has God been killed by his strongest opponents? On Bigger Questions, we tackle some of the big objections to belief in God today. And today's objection is suffering. Surely a loving God would never allow this much pain. And we're asking this question today to Dave Myers from City on a Hill. Dave worked as a primary school teacher before studying at Theological College. He subsequently worked for a church in Sydney for several years before moving to Melbourne and then to Brisbane, where he is lead pastor of City on a Hill, Brisbane. And he joins me now. Please welcome Dave Myers. Thank you. Thank you. Well, welcome, Dave. It's great that you can join us here today. Yeah, really glad to be here. Thanks, That's Robert. Right. Now, the big question for today is suffering. A loving God would never allow this much pain. Now, I'm kind of hoping that our conversation now won't add to the sum total of human misery and suffering. But before we talk about suffering, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your own Christian journey? Perhaps what made you want to follow Jesus? So what convinced you? to become a Christian believer? Uh, I grew up in a Christian family, so Christianity was always part of my upbringing. My, my father was a Baptist minister, my mother was a Baptist missionary, and so from a very young age I knew about Jesus, I knew what he'd done, I knew the difference between Christmas and Easter. Uh, that was such a privilege, um, growing up in a family like that. Uh, but it also meant that, in one sense, not that my parents taught me this, I think I thought being a Christian was about being moral. Um, and not that morality is a bad thing, but I thought that that's what made someone a Christian was that they were moral, they did the right thing. And so kind of growing up throughout school, I'd even look down on the people around me uh, and kind of... Because you were so moral. Yeah, and, you know, think of teenage boys and what teenage boys often get up to at high school and just lots of dumb stuff. And, and I knew it was dumb and I didn't do the dumb stuff and I thought I was better than them for not doing the dumb stuff that they were doing. And, and I've got no regrets about not doing the dumb stuff, but to be honest, I think that I thought God would accept me because of my morality, because I was better mm-hmm. uh, than someone else, uh, well, in my view at least. Mm-hmm. So what <laughs> um, changed? Yeah, I went to a, uh, a big youth conference uh, at the age of 17 and was struck um, from God's Word, from the Bible, about a man that was actually a lot like me. There's a story in um, Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, a Pharisee and a tax collector, a religious guy and a super sinful guy. Both went to a, a temple to pray and the Pharisee stood up and basically said, God, I thank you that I'm awesome. And did you feel like that? And I kind of felt like that, you know, God, I thank you that I'm not like all the idiots around me. <laughs> um, and I'd never, I'd never used those words. And it was actually in that talk that um, I may well have already been a Christian, but that's kind of when I understood a, a concept that Christians call grace. Uh, that is, you're not saved, you're not friends, you're not in a relationship with God because of the good moral things that you do. You're in a relationship with God simply because God is merciful. And so in that story, it's the tax collector, the super sinful guy, really looked down on his society, in his society. He's the one that He's got no pride at all. He, he won't even look up to heaven, but beats his breast and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so I think it was at that point that I understood that the way that I could be acceptable before God is not by what I do, but trusting in what Jesus has done, 
the mercy that Jesus shows me. Uh, I already knew about the cross, I already knew that Jesus had died for me, but actually understanding that that was the grounds, that was the basis, that was the reason why I could have confidence before God, not because of anything I did, not because I wasn't stupid like uh, some of my friends may have been. Now to kick off bigger questions, we like to ask a couple of smaller questions. We do try to have a bit of fun on the show. Though laughing at suffering can be insensitive and can trivialize genuine pain. In fact, someone suggested to me that the way I should respond to the sudden death of my mother was to keep laughing. So without attempting to trivialize suffering, I thought we could have a little fun by asking some smaller questions on first world suffering. Now there's a sense in which all suffering is a matter of perspective. So one person's suffering is another person's joy. So for myself, watching hours of English Premier League football is joy, (laughs) but it's agonizing suffering to my wife. Um, So first world problems is a term which describes a form of suffering of those in the developed world. It often highlights the triviality of this type of suffering, like I hate it when my house is so big that I need two wireless routers. So so anyway, Dave, I have a short little quiz about how much you know about first world problems, okay? According to our Facebook poll, which was scientifically conducted, which of the following first world problems received the most likes? One, I have too much cash in my wallet and it hurts my butt when I sit. I hate that, yeah. <laughs> Mine's normally receipts from having spent all the cash. <laughs> Two, I don't have enough dip for my chips, but if I open up another container, I won't have enough chips for my dip. Ah, that's a dilemma, isn't yeah. it? Three, my laptop is dying, but my charger is all the way upstairs. Or four, one pillow is too low, two pillows is too high. Wow. So which of these first world problems received the most likes on our Facebook poll? Can scientifically conduct? Uh, I, think, uh, I think all of them are terrible, terrible situations. <laughs> I think the last one, the pillow. The pillow. Because that, that affects you all night and you can't get it right and you wake up on the hour and go, is it two, is it one? Yeah. Well, yeah. well actually, it was about the dip. <laughs> Sorry, it was about, I didn't have enough dip for my chips, but if I open up another <coughs> container then I won't have enough chips for my dip. There you go. So, well, it's okay. You should do well better in the the second one. Where did the the term first world problem first appear? Was it A, in a 1990 work by Thomas Bass, where he wrote, 95% of the world's research is conducted by first world scientists on third world problems? Or was it B, in 1979, in G.K. Payne's work, Built Environment, Housing, Third World Solutions to First World Problems? Or was it C, a 2005 Twitter reaction to a person complaining about a holiday in Mexico saying that the beach sand had too many pebbles, one of which had chipped her manicure? Wow, that's good. It could easily have been those first two, but I feel like it was around 2005, that type of time when it got lots of traction online. So I'm just going to go the most recent one. Okay, well, just so that you don't fail, maybe you want to reconsider. Okay, I'm not going to go (laughs) the most recent one. So it's definitely one of the first two. Definitely one of the first two. And it could be the first one. No, no, it's probably the the second one. 1979, I think it was. The correct answer was B. It actually appeared in 1979. So Dave, in our first world problem suffering quiz, you nearly got one right. That's yeah, good. Congratulations. That's good. Give him a big hand. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> okay, now whilst the suffering encountered in first world problems really is quite trivial, genuine suffering is far, far different. Now the presence of suffering in our world is a common reason to reject the existence of a good God. So God therefore is either evil, impotent or imaginary. So in early 2015, atheist comedian Stephen Fry demonstrated this point when interviewed on Irish television. The host asked Fry to suppose it was all true and asked what he would then say to God when he died and was confronted by the Almighty. Fry replied, I'd say, bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world to which there is such misery that is not our fault? 
It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I'd say. So bone cancer in children, how, how do you react to Stephen Fry's comments? Yeah, look, uh, it's quite a powerful two-minute clip. And I guess the first thing I'd say is I, I respond with sympathy. You can actually feel the weight in the interview of, he's like, how dare you? Like there's just this tone of um, how angry he is with injustice that he can see in the world and suffering that he can see in the world. And I don't know how, you, how well you know Stephen Fry, but there's uh, all sorts of different issues that he's personally had and mm-hmm. uh, illnesses and his own suffering and pain that has been a long struggle and a long battle, uh, which interestingly, often co- comics have uh, and comedians, there's kind of the people who make us laugh often have these incredible stories of pain underneath and from their childhood and so as I hear his story and understand his story and as I hear his reaction you can tell that there is someone that has both personally experienced uh, suffering in his own life Uh, and I I think it's safe to say you know um, that he's also got a a keen awareness of the suffering of people around him whether Mm. it's the the child with bone cancer or whatever situation locally or globally and you watch the news and we're just constantly reminded that the world is not as it should be. Mm. Uh, the world is not um, functioning in a, in a good way. Um, you know, story after story of suffering and injustice and uh, on a small scale with the one person and their story and on the, the large scale tsunamis that wipe out 250, 300,000 people who are... Lying on the beach having a holiday, and you know, just moments later have, have died. And so, I guess, in responding to Stephen Fry, I, there's, the, there's the first thing I'd want to say is you know, I actually sympathize with well, empathize, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah sympathize and empathize, yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And and I guess I don't think I've ever seen this, but if a Christian was to stand up and say, Hey, I've got an easy answer to that, you know, I think that's problematic. I don't think the Bible leads you to hey, here's the easy answer. I think there are answers. I think there are ways to try to grapple with it. But I, I don't think that Christianity for a second suggests that there is an easy answer. But, you know, I guess the Bible gives permission in one sense to ask those hard questions. There's a sense in which I actually think the desire for justice, the desire when we actually see injustice and desire justice, when we see suffering and would love to see it alleviated, I actually think it shows us something of... Um, that there is a God, that there is a, a right, there is a wrong. We're not just accidents, um, you know, but there is actually um, a God who is behind the world um, and that things aren't as they should be. And so I don't, I don't think Christianity um, offers a, an easy answer. But again, I think the Bible gives examples of people grappling with the big questions. You know, there's this whole, um, particularly in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, you have um, uh, this whole concept of lament. Well, maybe we should look at some of that lament now. As part of Bigger Questions, we reflect on the Bible, and today's passage comes from the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. And here Habakkuk asks basically that question of, where are you, God, amidst the mess, difficulty, and pain? Now, many people might hear he might not be familiar with Habakkuk. Habakkuk sounds a little bit like a Pacific Islander rugby player, <laughs> but the, the name sort of means wrestle or mm. embrace. Now, Habakkuk begins with this impassioned cry. So Habakkuk 1, 2 to 3 says, How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. 
So should we feel uncomfortable with his tone here? You know, how long, Lord, must I call out to help, but you do not listen? I think a knee-jerk reaction would be, oh, you can't say that to God. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, hang on, is this a prophet? Is this someone that's, you know, got, got a write-up in the Bible? And is this being, you know, put forward as a, an appropriate response? And I think if you were just to stop and say, how long, O oh Lord, must we cry out for help? And if the book finished there... Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like it would be a little bit incomplete, but kind of as you look at the whole picture of the book of Habakkuk, uh, and Habakkuk for me has been a personally actually a really uh, important book in grappling with these questions. Mm -hmm. Um, How how so? Do you want to expand on that? I I like how real and raw Habakkuk is. Mm -hmm. And so Habakkuk is, you know, in the... um, uh, God's people, Judah, are, um, you know, he looks around. Uh, the structure of, um, let me give you the structure of the book. Who wants the structure of the book? Uh, yeah, there's lots of hands going up in yeah, there. Everywhere. Everyone's <laughs> going wild. Give Everyone me the structure. Just goes, goes Come wild. on. Structure. Yeah. Ba- basically. they're all engineers, actually. Yeah. Basically, Habakkuk complains. God answers. Habakkuk complains again. God answers. And then Habakkuk prays. Uh, and uh, what you see, so in, in his first complaint, which is the bit that we've just had read out, he's crying out to God saying, God, why is injustice taking place within our nation? This is not right. This is not in accord with your character. Um, why don't you do something about it? Um, and they're also the people of God, special people of God. Yeah. So why are we suffering? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so you kind of go, isn't God supposed to be looking after his people? Why would, he, why would these things be happening? And so Habakkuk... Um, even in that, he said, you know, God, your eyes are too pure to even look upon evil. Like, why, why would you let this go unchecked? Um, and then he, you know, so he complains, but God gives him an answer. He says, well, I am, I am going to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is obviously a paraphrase, you know, I am going to do something about it, uh, but not what you're expecting. Actually, I'm going to raise up a foreign nation to come in to Judah to get rid of the injustice within Judah. Uh, and, and Habakkuk then is like, God, what are you talking about? Uh, how, how can you do that? Like, they're even worse than those that are committing acts of injustice within our nation. Mm. Uh, and so complains once, God says, well, I'm going to do something about it, but you're not going to like it. Uh, complains again, uh, and then he says, um, but I'll wait. I'll actually, you know, wait to see what, what you've got to say. And, uh, and God responds to him and says, basically, sit tight, because they too will be brought to justice. And one of the things that strikes me throughout the whole book, he continually reminds himself of what he knows of God's character. He reminds himself that God is good. He reminds himself that God hates evil. He reminds himself of the way that God has saved throughout history. Uh, he continues to remind himself of what he knows about God, and he finishes in this extraordinary place where um, if, if what God says is about to happen is about to happen, it's about to get worse before it gets better. But justice is coming and there's this contentment and trust in God that even though he doesn't have all the answers, he trusts from what he knows about God that God is good and trustworthy. Mm. And there's just this... Um, uh, incredible picture of faith and trust in God, regardless of understanding all the circumstances. So, therefore, it seems that this philosophical objection that Stephen Fry mm. has brought up, that God can't exist given the present of evil and suffering in the world, just really isn't in Habakkuk's mind. Habakkuk wasn't an atheist. There was no doubt that God was real, that God had been at work uh, in and through history. Uh, yeah, so there was a very real understanding that there is a God, uh, the Creator God, the God of Israel in the Old Testament. Um, and so I don't think that for Habakkuk, 
He may be angry, he may be upset, but I don't think he's about to say, well, therefore God doesn't exist. It is a phenomenal response, really, to actually trust God at his word. God says, look, it's actually going to get worse, but trust me, trust me. I am your God. I will save you. Um, uh, Things may get worse, but they will get better. Yeah, he does talk about injustice and he reflects on the injustice a world full of injustice and that was part of Stephen Fry's objection but Habakkuk there says in 1.3 why do you make me look at injustice so Mm. he cries out for justice but we have to be careful about the call for justice though don't we I mean how far do we want him to go yeah Uh, I used to be a primary school teacher I did a lot of um, casual teaching and I I regularly asked this this question every day it was a fun activity Uh, but I'd look out at the class and I'd say now class I want you to imagine that tomorrow is International Day of No Consequences uh, and basically, you know, explain a scenario. I want you to talk to the people around you just in small groups and imagine that tomorrow has no consequences. Um, You know, you're not going to get in trouble from the police, from your parents, from the teachers. You're not going to get in trouble. You can do whatever you want. And they share with the people around them on the things that they're going to be doing. And uh, it's lots of fun. There's lots of noise. And then after 10 minutes, pull everyone back in together uh, and hear some of the responses. Uh, And they just, you know, it starts off, look, I'm going to steal something from the canteen. You know, it kind of starts off there. But then it just keeps, it's the boys. The boys just keep taking it up and I was, I'm going to steal my parents' car. You know, I'm not going to steal my parents' car. I'm going to steal a Ferrari. You know, I'm going to find a gun and shoot everyone. (laughs) It just gets worse and worse and worse. And then, and then there's norm, it's normally a girl, because they're the smart ones in year six, um, <laughs> who puts a hand up and, and uh, says, I'm going to hide under my bed. I'm not going anywhere with you guys outside. And I, I guess what it, what it shows is, given the opportunity, we're actually capable of great evil. And the fact that we, you know, the fact that a kid thinks it would be good to live in a world with, without any consequences, um, you know, is horrifying. But the fact that there is a God means that there are consequences. There is something called justice. There is right. There is wrong. When we see injustice, when we see things not done the way we think things should be done, that's actually God's justice at work at that point. There is a morality. There is a, um, there is a standard. And that's why it's a universal thing that the atheist... Uh, regardless of the religion, we call out for justice because I think we've got built into us a desire to see wrongs righted and to, and to see ju- injustice overcome with that which is just. So a question's just come in just related to that. If God can eliminate injustice, why doesn't he just do it now? Why wait until later? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Well, I guess the question is, how, if God were to come in justice right now, how far would we want him to take it? You know, where's the dividing line between those who are okay with God and those who are not? You know, is it to the left of me or is it to the right of me? And, you know, people like even yourself in in your history, you said that, you know, well, I'm pretty righteous, but you actually recognize that you you weren't. Yeah, totally. So if you wanted justice, then you'd actually have a problem. Yeah, totally, totally. And so um, my cry for justice is right, and we should, we, we should be on about justice in the world. And I think we, all people ought to be agents for justice in the world and do what we can to bring about an end to injustice in whatever small and large ways that we can personally be, be doing that. Um, how far do we want God to take justice? Because the reality, you know, and this is, this is the uncomfortable truth in the Bible, is, uh, but more than just in the Bible, I think human experience actually squares with the Bible at this point that no one is without blame. 
no one is without being part of the problem. Mm. That's not saying we're as bad as we could possibly be. That's not saying that we are the worst of worst sinners in the world. Like your primary school kids, if left <laughs> unfettered. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what well, that could happen. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, but, so, but the reality is we all have actually... Uh, have contributed to injustice in the world. And so therefore, okay, if we cry out for God to come in justice, who will stand? None of us could actually stand if God were right now to come in justice. But would it therefore be fair to say, though, in terms of ending injustice, that God actually has done something, perhaps yeah. in, in Jesus? Absolutely. And that um, Christianity is good news. The word gospel is good news. The, word, the message of Jesus is good news. Because in Jesus, we actually see one who is without sin. In Jesus, we see one who actually hasn't contributed to the injustice in the world, who has always lived to honour God. Um, Jesus is the only one who hasn't been rebellious. He's the only one who hasn't set up his own system for living and ignored God in his life. And so um, ultimately, it's um, as we meet Jesus, we see what God has done to bring an end to injustice in this world. Jesus, um, this is what Christians believe, this is what the Bible claims, Jesus is God come amongst us in the flesh. And so when we say, you know, God is so distant, God doesn't understand suffering, God has no idea about this, no, God has actually come near. Uh, but he's also suffered. Mark, Mark 15, 34 recounts the crucifixion yeah. of Jesus. Uh, at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm. So how does the death of Jesus affect the way we look at the problem of suffering? the start of the Gospels, we see that God has come near. Throughout the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus, we see Jesus' compassion for people, Jesus doing things to bring an end to suffering here and now. And by the end of the Gospels, as you've just read out for us, we see the ultimate thing that Jesus has done, the sinless one who does not deserve death, who does not deserve judgment, who does not deserve suffering for any injustice he has caused because he is without sin, Jesus willingly goes to the cross. And as we see in that Mark chapter 15 verse, at the cross, he is forsaken. He is, in a sense, taking upon himself the suffering that we deserve. Jesus is suffering to bring an end to suffering. Jesus takes on poverty to bring an end to poverty. Jesus suffers injustice to bring justice. And so it's at the cross that Jesus, the innocent one, dies in the place of guilty ones. Jesus, the holy one, dies in the place of unholy, the righteous one in the place of unrighteous, the sinless for the sinner. And so what Christians believe is that God is not distant. God actually has heard his people's cry for justice and God has come near in and through the person and work of Jesus. God himself, uh, in, in the person and work of his son, the Lord Jesus, has suffered at the cross. And it's through that event that we can have confidence that suffering one day will be brought to an end. So in some ways, the questions that Stephen Fry asked are answered through Jesus. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, you, 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 can't, you can't look at Jesus and, and think that um, he is aloof and distant. He loves, he is compassionate, he is caring. And, and he, he feels suffering. He, feel, he feels suffering. He enters into human... The Creator enters into His creation, uh, takes on flesh, has the full array of emotions and experiences that we have, the same temptations that we have, yet He's without sin. And so when He goes to the cross, He, he takes our sin. And so I guess back to the, the question from the SMS, why doesn't... If God has done that 2,000 years ago, in and through Jesus, why doesn't, why doesn't He just wrap things up? Like, what are we still waiting for? 
Um, and I, I guess the answer to that question is God is patient and wants more people to come to him. Um, God is compassionate and, and wants people to throw themselves upon Jesus for mercy. Uh, and so we, I guess we look forward to um, the Christian hope is one of um, God has done something and God will do something. There's a day when Jesus will return, when the, the hands that had nails pierced through them will actually wipe every tear from the eyes of those who have put their trust in him. Mm. And so our confidence, my confidence in the midst of hardship is that not only has God done something, but I know that he will because he's kept every other promise up until this point. As we finish up, we look at the ending of Habakkuk. Mm. We go back to Habakkuk, which is fascinating when it says, Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive oil crops fail and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the sheepfold and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights for the director of music on my stringed instruments. Mm. Now, it seems that despite all the suffering that he observes, the hunger, the crop failure, the business failure, yet the author rejoices mm. in the Lord. So how can one rejoice in the Lord when he doesn't seem to care for his people? He can rejoice in the Lord because he knows that God does care for his people. And I, I think it's almost like Habakkuk throughout those three chapters has almost preached a sermon to himself as he's interacted with God. And, and by the end, he's like, well, I, I'm still confused about the why but I know the who, and I know that God is good. I know this about his character, this about his character, this about his character. He said that this, he will bring justice. He is my Lord. He is my rock. He is my salvation. And I, it's just phenomenal. If, if he rejoices by the end. And the, the footnote there that you read out at the end, for the director of music on my stringed instruments. I love that. We often, Christians skip out those bits sometimes. They just look like footnotes. But I love that a, um, a book that's all about the hardship and the big questions of life finishes with, hey, this was actually supposed to be a song to be sung that a Christian can take joy in the God of their salvation regardless of their circumstances. God is real. God is good. God has done something. God will do something. And so trust him. So wrapping up, God versus suffering. A loving, loving God would never allow this much pain? We know that God is loving. We may not always understand the why of, of why suffering was allowed into the world in the first place. But we know that God is not far off. He has come near. Uh, and I, I personally take great comfort in when I see the general brokenness of the world around me and when I even personally suffer and personally experience loss and hardship, knowing that, no, God is good, God is loving. Um, he, he is so reliable, so dependable. Um, if I doubt it, I look back to the cross and I look, I look at what Jesus endured to bring an end to suffering on that day and I long for that day all the more. It builds hope within me as I see the brokenness in this world that God is good and that one day God will once and for all, bring an end to all suffering and injustice. Let me leave you with the Bible's reflection on the big question. Surely a loving God would never allow this much pain. From Habakkuk 3, 17 to 18. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the sheepfold and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Please thank our guest today, Dave Myers. Enjoy Bigger Questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. 
go to patreon.com slash bigger questions.